Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. On this episode, we have Dr. Emily Onhalt, who is a speaker and pioneer in the psychology and business space. As co-founder and chief clinical officer of BEAM, a gym for the mind, Dr. Onhalt helps tech companies increase productivity with their employees by improving morale and team dynamics. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. Today I'm joined by a special guest, Emily. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. So Emily, pretend we just met and we've made some small talk. It's going pretty well. And I ask you... So what do you do? So I am a clinical psychologist and emotional fitness consultant. Essentially, I'm on a mission to help destigmatize and demystify what it looks like to work on your mental health in a proactive rather than reactive way. Very cool. So you mentioned stigma. Where do you see the stigma at around mental health in terms of founders and entrepreneurship? Uh, where's the stigma at these days? It's definitely reducing drastically, I think, as the sort of millennial generation is up and coming and starting to take over in various positions. It's starting to be not only acceptable, but really celebrated to talk about what you're doing for your mental and emotional health, which I think is fantastic. That being said, though, I think we have a ways to go, and I'm wanting to make mental health as commonplace as physical health. 
and community driven as well. So right now I think sometimes mental health still happens sort of in isolation and individually, and there's something beautiful about that. But I also think there's room to come together as community and support each other. I completely agree. Oftentimes community or just exchanging honest conversations with peers, it's kind of the best therapy in a way. It's um, a way that you can get therapy or get some help without you know, taking the leap with working with a professional. Do you see conversations, real in life conversations with peers as a form of therapy or how do you view that? And basically I'm, I'm setting you up for the, the question and the challenge that so many founders and so many people think I'm getting what I need already through my existing relationships. And I think a big hurdle for a lot of founders to overcome is why would I need therapy? Basically, like I'm getting everything I need. I'm getting the support, the care, the conversations uh, and the interaction. What could therapy offer? Which is still an op- open question for a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, so I really appreciate that point because I think part of that idea that I'm already getting what I need is partly about facing the painful truth that we don't have everything we need. And I think part of why therapy is stigmatized is because it's really hard and it's painful work to do. And convincing ourselves we don't need to do it is one way to kind of turn away from that tough stuff. But when we're with friends and peers, we are always going to be holding in mind their reality as we explore ours. Whereas with therapy, when you know, when you deeply and truly trust that what's happening in that room will stay in that room, there are things that can surface that just wouldn't have been able to otherwise. It just Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been safe for those things that we keep really hidden, even from ourselves, from bubbling up. And so there's something kind of magical that happens as you come to trust the confidentiality and specialness of this place where you also get to leave things. You know, when you know that there is a dedicated space for you to explore these tough things each week, then you can move during the week, those really tough thoughts and say, okay, I have a place to explore these. I'll hold off on that for now. And then when it's at the end of that session, you can say, okay, I know that this will be held for me here until next time. Very cool. So where was the first moment in your education or your personal life where you started to get interested in psychology or was it a book? Was it a conversation with someone? Uh, What was the first moment like where you knew like, I got to go deeper into this field? I took a high school psychology class with this man who I thought was just brilliant. And a lot of what he taught was the idea that if you know a lot about psychology, you know a little about everything. Because psychology and relationships are the language that the world is spoken in, in so many ways. And I thought that that was really fascinating. So I kind of geared my life toward that exploration. And I've just had my mind blown open so many times in my own therapy. A lot of times when I'm talking about why I think therapy is important, I do so from the perspective of me as the patient instead of the psychologist, because I think maybe that's a little more genuine. And I went to my own therapy thinking, oh, this is a way for me to learn what therapy is about and how to be a better therapist. And, you know, cut to six months later, me having all these realizations about things that I never could have imagined that, you know, you don't know what you don't know which is what I think makes therapy so powerful. So if you're willing to share, what are some examples, uh, you can anonymize them or uh, however you want, but what are some examples of what objectivity and a third party or therapy can provide that you can't otherwise get on your own? The way I like to think about is if you've ever held a picture right up to your face 
it's hard to tell what the whole thing is. All you can see is sort of a blur or something directly in front of you. And as you pull it outward more, the fuller picture becomes clear. There's a quote I love, which is, it takes two to know one. And I think that your therapist has this outside perspective that helps you reflect on yourself in a way that would be really tough to do otherwise. And they're trained, you know, essentially to do that. So let me think of an example. So this is an example of when some of the, probably the best advice I've ever gotten in my life. I'll give you my own personal example. I was young and someone who was really important to me was in the hospital. They weren't doing well. It wasn't looking likely that they were going to make it. And I was devastated, of course. And a family friend came over to support us. This friend was a psychologist and also an oncologist. And so he specialized in supporting families of people who were losing a loved one. So really understood the situation. And I said to him, what will I do? What will I do if I lose this person? How will I survive it? And he said, you know, the person who will figure out what to do, the person who will know how to handle that moment has not been born into existence yet. And for you to expect your present self to know now what your future self will have the time and experience to learn is not fair. You have to trust that when it's time to deal with it, the version of you that can handle it will become. Just like past you had to trust that present you is handling this very difficult moment. So all you need to focus on right now is handling this moment. And in my anxiety and grief, I never could have thought about things in such a zoomed out kind of way. I was too deep inside it myself. And so there's this distance that a therapist has that allows them to see things in a bigger picture kind of way. That's such good advice. I can remember a wiser, older uh, mentor when I was in the military and we would be on deployments and his advice to everyone who started to get worried or overwhelmed or start stressing out about what was going to be you know, the mission next month or next uh, year, he would always just say, you can only take it one day at a time. And it's simple advice, but it's always so true. You can't worry about what's going to happen in the future. You can only take things one day at a time. Emily, let's jump into, you published an article with us that I think is excellent. It's called The Importance of the Emotionally Fit Founder. And you started off with something that we hear a lot, but we don't internalize what it means. And let's, uh, let's start there where you say, the most successful founders and CEOs are not necessarily the most cognitively stable. The task of starting a company requires a certain type of obsessionality and the ability to push forward with an idea even when all evidence points to defeat. So that's a, a really honest way of opening the article, and it's true. So what is different about founders or entrepreneurs than maybe the average, uh, the average person, if anything? You know, I think there's this sweet spot that founders find when they're successful between distortion of reality and facing reality. Because essentially what a founder is, is someone who sees a reality that doesn't exist yet and believes in it enough to dedicate their entire life for some handful of years to making it a reality. There's some, you know, mild delusion to that, a, a willingness to keep pressing towards something that no one else can see yet. That's, you know, there's some narcissism to that that I think is really necessary. Not to mention the 
onslaught of rejection and small failures, big failures along the way that you have to be able to handle over and over again. And I think someone who is able to let that slide off of them is going to benefit in a big way. On the other hand, your biggest strengths become your biggest weaknesses really quickly if you're not keeping them in check. So the founder who believes in this reality so much that they're not willing to see if a pivot is necessary or if something's not working or if people are unhappy with them, that's not going to help them in the long run. So it's really about finding that balance. And I think one great way of finding that balance is bringing in other minds. So ensuring that you're not responsible for seeing the whole truth by yourself all the time. When you're so invested in a particular truth, we are pretty good at denying realities that would suggest otherwise. So mm. by bringing in other minds, we're seeing things from more than one perspective, which gives us a more authentic picture. And as we go through the article, you bring up the importance of being emotionally fit. And there's a great, I think Chip Conley popularized the phrase, instead of thinking of CEO as chief executive officer, you should think of it as chief emotional officer because your team, the people you're interacting with, whether you like it or not, they're going to take on your emotions and they're going to spill over into the team. So what are some ways to maybe get better at emotional fitness in our own life? How can we build those muscles? Absolutely. So I like the way you use the term building those muscles, because I really do see it as something that should be done proactively, just like you would with your physical fitness. Something that I like to say is that with physical fitness, a lot of people like to believe that if they're not sick, that that means that they're healthy. But if you talk to someone who's really committed to their physical fitness, someone who sleeps eight hours a day and eats healthy and exercises, they'll tell you just because you're not actively ill does not necessarily mean that you're healthy. And the right. same is true with emotional fitness. You might not have a diagnosable psychological disorder or be struggling with panic attacks every day, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're emotionally fit. Emotional fitness actually takes dedication and it's ongoing. There's a lot of work involved with it. But if you do it, you build actual resilience muscles. You get better at facing tough situations and seeing difficult realities and making tough decisions, things like that. And so I highly recommend starting the journey before things are really wrong. Don't wait till something's totally falling apart to dedicate yourself to building your emotional fitness. Because you can almost build up a reservoir, basically. Like if you're taking really good care of yourself when you do have to start making the sacrifices and spend a month or two months where you're not able to make it to the gym, you can weather the storm much more easily. Is this something you see where are basically people coming to you when they should have came to you months ago? Or do you see a lot of people coming to you who are already practicing emotional fitness? I guess I sort of think it's never too early and it's never too late. <laughs> there's always work we could have done earlier and there's always something really wonderful to be gained from starting now. But I think that in addition to building this reservoir, you also build skills that protect you from some of the problems in the first place. So part of emotional fitness is getting really good at communicating, getting really good at empathizing with other people and building relationships. And good relationships are fairly protective. And even if something really tough does happen, if you've set those things in place, it's going to be much harder to wade through them. Love it. So the first thing you bring up here to help build that emotional fitness is self-awareness. And we talked a little bit about how talking to someone or working with a therapist can help you build self-awareness. What are some strategies you like to recommend for those who are looking to become more aware? Of course, therapy. I'm biased, but I think that that's really useful. I think just developing a system of self-inquiry, getting used to checking in with yourself and accepting the idea 
that you have blind spots and that there's a lot you don't know about yourself. I tend to be wary of people who say that they're extremely self-aware because I see it almost like I see good scientists who can mm -hmm. say, the more we know, the more we realize how little we know. Right. I think that's true of ourselves. I think the better you get to know yourself, the more you realize how many things we kind of, you know, turn away from or don't allow ourselves to see day to day. And in holding that possibility, you're going to make space for those things to emerge. In order for that to be possible, though, one thing I like to say is that you have to be patient with yourself. I think people who are starting this journey expect themselves to confront deep aspects of their personalities or their relationships or their learning styles, you know, deep truths that took them literally decades to develop and then somehow change these things after a weekend seminar or six sessions of therapy or one conversation. And this is just such an unfair ask. I think in order to improve ourselves, we kind of have to honor that we are who we are for a reason and give ourselves some time to undo and heal and redo. Yeah, it's uh, always easier said than done, but it's yeah, such a great reminder. And the second thing you bring up here is empathy. So I think empathy is, it's not only a superpower, it's one of the things that if you can actually empathize with others, that's how you're going to connect. But I think real empathy though, is something that, like you mentioned, takes a lot of time. How can people get started or are there some maybe conversation starters that you like to recommend to people who want to start empathizing more closely with their team, their co-founders, or maybe their spouse? Absolutely. So I think one misconception about empathy is it gets confused with sympathy. I think mm -hmm. empathy is not just intellectually understanding what someone is going through. Empathy is actually letting yourself feel what someone else is feeling in order to be helpful to them. And this is a painful and tough thing to do. It means you're taking on difficult feelings. But the benefit of it is a much better ability to be helpful once you're there with them. And one worry that comes up, I think, is people think, if I really empathize with this person, then their problems become my problems. And now suddenly, it's my job to fix everything. And that's actually not the case. Empathy doesn't mean that you then become responsible for the other person. So I think that's one thing to clear up. And then another suggestion I give is, I believe people wildly underestimate the power of just asking what someone mm -hmm. needs. You know, when someone's upset, it can be really powerful to say, do you want empathy or do you want solutions? And not feel like we have to guess what it is that the person needs from us. We all want to have our mind read, of course, but it's important to empower each person to think for themselves about what they need so that you're in a better position to give it to them. Yeah, it's so true. And for people that are prone to falling into the solutions trap all the time, I think sometimes it's good to just listen because you can't oftentimes when you're just recommending solution after solution, there isn't anything more presumptuous that's going to prevent real connection. So that's, uh, that's so true. Okay. The next one is one of my favorites that uh, it's willingness to play that you bring up. So play is good for everyone. We often forget that it's an option in our modern culture, but play is something that, you know, in corporate environments, you're not going to see too much of it. But for founders or someone who is operating with a small team, play is something you can do. It's something you can uh, take, the, take a risk and uh, get started. So for people who are looking to bring more play into their life, what do you usually say or recommend to them? Well, I think uh, play is it, it's seen in a specific way to a lot of people. If you ask when's the last time you played, most people will think of a board game or uh, playing in a sports 
game or video games, that kind of thing. But I think play is any situation where you are willing to try something on as if it's real without it actually being real and see where it goes. So one example of this is when you think about what martial arts is, you're not pretending to fight. You really are fighting, but Mm -hmm. you're not fighting as though you're actually in a real fight for your life. And this sort of balance between real and not real allows you to get into this really magical space. So in the work setting, brainstorming, if you think about it, is play. You're trying on ideas together. You're not committing yourself to any of them. You're just seeing where they go. Anytime you take a joke too far with a friend, that's play, right? You're just kind of seeing how it unfolds when you let it go to crazy places. So as a founder, I recommend integrating play into the culture of your company from the beginning. So starting meetings with an icebreaker game or hosting an annual game of capture the flag or whatever it might be, even just allowing yourself as a leader to be silly and to make enough space to go back and forth with someone rather than feeling like getting to the end immediately is the only important thing. It's a bit like improv, right? It's not, you're not trying to take away or stop someone's idea. You're saying like, yes, and um, I think is, yeah, so, so important to keep the conversation going. Yes, uh, and people are my favorite people. <laughs> Same here. So the next one you bring up is reality testing, which is so, so important because you want to have that delusional optimism, but at the same time, be objective. So how can founders or anyone that's listening go about reality testing? Because everyone who's listening has dreams, but how can they start to reality test as they move closer to their dreams? Yeah. So I'd like to explain reality testing as being able to tolerate the difference between what you want to be true and what is true. And that that's a difficult thing. We want to kind of will our desires into existence. But if we aren't willing to face any truths that don't match our desire, we're going to face a lot of problems. So I mentioned this before, but I recommend bringing in other minds, having Mm. partners and people you trust who you can run your own reality through to see if it matches theirs. And being willing to face if something isn't what you thought it was, which is much easier said than done. But I think is a muscle you build over time because when your inner sense of self-confidence is strong, then external things that go wrong don't tear you apart inside as much. So building that strength over time makes a big difference. Agree. So the next one here is mindfulness. And you say that emotionally fit leaders can sit and process through discomfort. And for anyone that's on the, in the early stages of creation or where you're in the trenches and working really, really hard day in and day out, this one can, this is super, super hard to do. So how can we go about practicing mindfulness when oftentimes we're overloaded by inputs and stimulus? Any practices there? Yeah, I think pretty much any time of any type of self-improvement comes down to becoming more comfortable being uncomfortable. And one of the practical ways I think a person can practice this is yoga. If you think about what yoga is, It is literally putting people in physically uncomfortable positions and then asking them to pay attention to what's coming up for them. And different people will feel different things in this discomfort. So let's say in your yoga class and the teacher's been making everyone hold warrior two for five minutes and everyone's exhausted. One person might be thinking, oh, I'm terrible at this. I never should have come to this class. I'm awful. I'm worthless, right? They might attack themselves because they're uncomfortable. The person next to them might be thinking, this yoga teacher is horrible. I can't, she's such a sadist. I can't believe I even came here. I'm never coming back here again. So they might be turning away from the discomfort by putting it on the other person. 
And then the third person, maybe the one who's really been practicing emotional fitness and tolerating discomfort might be saying to themselves, okay, this is really hard, but it's not going to last forever. I'm getting stronger. I'm proud of myself. I can do this. I've got this. So as you learn about your particular ways of turning away from discomfort, you're going to be able to head them off at the pass a little bit. And then when you're in the boardroom and someone says something that makes you really uncomfortable, you can notice what's happening for you. And you can think, hmm, this is that thing that happens when I'm uncomfortable. Maybe I'll take a deep breath and make a choice based on what's best in this moment versus what will move me away from this discomfort the quickest. I love it. And the next point here is resilience. So we talked about it earlier, but if you're doing something new, there are going to be many, many no's, way more no's than there are yeses. And you say, emotionally fit leaders know that more is to be learned from failure than success and can bounce back during difficult times. So oftentimes, you know, for anybody that goes through something difficult, you find yourself feigning optimism. You have to basically fake optimism or get out and get moving until you actually feel optimistic. Do you, are you a fan of the fake it until you feel it type thing or what? What's your approach there? There's a balance there. I definitely understand that sometimes you have to find positivity because you're going to need to push forward no matter what. But I think people who are always trying to find positivity and not making any space for the negative feelings end up building up this kind of plaque of negativity that gets Mm -hmm. harder and harder to push away. And I think having some kind of dedicated place where you can think the negative thoughts and have the worries and really lean into that is in the long run going to make it easier to be positive in a more genuine way. I think the feelings we don't feel through, we end up carrying with us all the time. And so, yes, we do need to be able to fake it till we make it, but hopefully you also have really dedicated self-care time where you can turn toward those more painful feelings. Definitely. And the final point here is effective communication. So in an era where we have remote work, it's never, and so much texting and everything like that, it's never been easier to misunderstand someone or project things onto their words and intentions that weren't really there. So how are we supposed to go about communicating effectively when all of our communication is you know, rife with potentials for misunderstanding? What do you, what do you recommend there? Absolutely. It is rife for misunderstanding because we're all seeing the world through a totally different lens. We all see the world through the lens of our own experience. I think that uh, one format of communication I highly recommend is nonviolent communication. Taking a course in the strategy is really helpful because it essentially puts the responsibility back into each individual person for their own feelings and needs. And it forces you to learn to put words to what it is that you're hoping for, which gives the other person a real chance to either do that for you or say no, at which case you can decide what you'd like to do from there. At least it makes things more clear. And I think as you learn how to express yourself better and take responsibility for the aspect of what you're feeling that is your own and not the other person's becomes a lot more possible for the other person to meet those needs. So for everyone listening now at the, as we start to wrap up our interviews, we like to do a series of lightning round questions. doesn't necessarily have to be short. So feel free to take as long as you want on these answers, but if you're ready, let's jump into it. Sure, please. So what's the best fiction book? And then what is the best nonfiction book that you've read in the last couple of years? I'd say the best fiction book, I have to say I am a big fan of a really good plot twist. So my favorite was probably Gone Girl because I didn't see the turn in the book coming and that was delightful. 
cool. That's Jill- Jillian Flynn? Or? Yeah, yeah. It's very psychological and great mystery. My favorite nonfiction book, I think there's a tie for two. One of them is Shantaram, which is one man's account of crazy adventures that took him through India and Australia. And he ended up getting thrown in jail and he wrote the book from jail and it got taken from him three times. So he actually had to rewrite the book from memory three times. It's a huge book. So huge undertaking. And uh, it's just very vulnerable and, and authentic and really lovely. And then the other one I'd recommend is Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. It's a collection of advice columns and she so beautifully uses her own experience to empathize with the people who are writing in for her advice. I'm not usually a fan of advice because I think normally the problem isn't that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't know how to do what we know we need to do or we don't know why we're not doing it. So I'm wary of it sometimes, but the way she speaks to it is so beautiful. Love it. What about series? So I don't know if you watch TV, but if you do have a time or take some time to watch a movie or TV series, what are you watching? Are you watching Netflix, HBO, any favorite series? Uh, I love documentaries. So any kind of documentary, I'm always a big fan of. Let me think what my other favorites have been. Good comedy. Any favorite specials you watch lately? Stand-up specials? I haven't watched much stand-up comics, actually. Do you have any to recommend? We're entering a golden age of stand-up. It it really depends on what you like, but I think Chris is pretty funny, and I've watched... So I think Rogan's stand-up specials are awesome. And then uh, Theo Vaughn has some really, really interesting. So he's from a small town in Louisiana, I think, which is just filled with uh, horrible stories from his youth uh, that he manages to make funny. But yeah, I love comedians. And so many of them are basically processing their own traumas on stage. And it's, uh, yeah, it's incredible to watch. Yeah, I, I sometimes feel that the most exquisite talent comes from the most exquisite pain. And there's a reason why the, some of the people who are making the most amazing art across all mediums come from really tough upbringings. Completely agree. What about activities? So are you based in the Bay Area? I am. I'm in San Francisco. Awesome. What are your favorite one day getaways or activities in the Bay Area? So I think there's something really magical about Big Sur. I've heard somewhere that there's a coming together of energies there that's supposed to just be felt anytime you're there. And I feel that being near the ocean is humbling to me because the ocean doesn't really care about you. And there's something (laughs) that I think induces humility there. But anything that involves food, I'm a big fan of. Food is pretty much the same as love in most cultures. So there's something really special about experiencing someone's you know, something someone's put a lot of love into making. Cool. And what about projects that you're working on or undertakings or anything like that or businesses you're building? What's exciting in your life right now? And better yet, what's thrilling? Wow. What a poignant question. It happens to be great timing. So yes, I am co-founding a company. It's called Beam, B-E-A-M. And it's a gym for the mind. It will be brick and mortar therapy gyms, essentially, where people can come try therapy, see their therapist on an ongoing basis, take workshops and classes, and sit in a tea lounge and talk with their community about what it's like to work on their emotional fitness. Very cool. So we like to end with a final call to adventure from our guest. So if you had to say one thing to our audience about, you know, maybe it's an inspirational message or maybe it's a piece of advice. You mentioned the best advice you ever got earlier. 
What's your advice to everyone or what would you leave the audience with? I would invite the audience, everyone listening here, to think about what is the best piece of positive feedback or validation they've ever gotten and write it down and take a picture of it and start a folder on their desktop of all of the good words that come to them. And anytime they get an email or a review or whatever it might be that makes them feel good, to screenshot it and put it in that folder. So when they're feeling down on themselves and they're seeing only a slice of reality, which is the one that their harsh critic is making them feel, their harsh inner critic, then they can go through that folder and remind themselves that actually there's much more to it and that there are a lot of people out there who see their value. Excellent advice. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.